Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, A Light Unto My Path. I'm your host, Howard Sides. Uh, today, we're going to continue our uh, study through the book of Revelation. Uh, in chapter 7 is where we're at today. Uh, chapter 7 is uh, broken up into three sections. Chapter 7 is broken up into three sections. Uh, the first section is verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3, and that is God's providential care for his own. God's providential care for his own. Uh, the second section is verses 4 through 12, and that is God's personal claim for his own. God's personal claim for his own. And then the third section is verses 13 through 17, and that describes God's principal concern for his own. God's principal concern for his own. All right, so uh, let's start with the first section here. That would be God's providential care <clears throat> for his own. Verses 1 through 3. And let's see. Uh, let's go ahead and read that. And then we'll just read each section as we get to those points. So chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And after these things, and what these things is he talking about? The vision of the uh, first six seals have been broken and accomplished. So this is... A pause in time between the 6th and the 7th seal uh, is where chapter 7 takes place. Chapter 8 starts with the breaking of the 7th seal, which introduces or begins uh, the 7 trumpet judgments. So, so this is going on during that time. Okay, so after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Okay, so uh, that's an interesting point there. We see a lot of, whenever you talk about the book of Revelation, uh, one of the things people talk about is, is the seals. They talk about the mark of the beast. They talk about it in the forehead and all this kind of stuff. Well, here we see that uh, there's actually going to be a mark in the forehead of, of those who are saved. So just having a mark in your forehead is not a bad thing <laughs> going through the tribulation period. So we'll, we'll kind of get in that and discuss that a little bit. So at the end of chapter 6, we see where there's this question asked, who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand? And in chapter 7, God mercifully answers this question by showing that even in the midst of of this terrible judgment and wrath going on, he still seeks to bring man unto himself with one final opportunity. And that's amazing. 
that even in the face of God unleashing his judgment, he still uh, reserves a little bit for uh, a chance, one final opportunity still, even then. It, it's amazing. So uh, within God's providential care, we see several things in these verses. First of all, there is the stillness of verse 1 the stillness of verse 1. Now, this chapter gives Paul's in the middle of utter destruction. When well, we talked about that, chaos and misery. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we see these four angels uh, talked about first. These angels represent God's providential restraining forces against judgment until the sealing is completed. Uh, it mentions that they're in the four corners of the earth, uh, this is a common Hebrew expression for the entire earth. Um, and it's talked about the four winds. Uh, is a common Hebrew expression for the entire earth. Uh, it is an instrument of judgment. Uh, God also suspends the chaos for a moment. Uh, world leaders were, will undoubtedly claim responsibility for the calm that is settled upon the earth as an accomplishment of their own devices. Um uh, Anytime nature suspends its wrath, uh, some man somewhere invariably in some element of power is going to say he had something to do with it. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It just, it's there for the taking, I guess. So they, they take it. All right, so that's the stillness. <clears throat> uh, second of all, we see the sealing. S-E-A-L-I-N-G, not the sealing over your head, but the sealing. Uh, spoken of, verses 2 through 3. Uh, so we see these four angels, and now we're introduced here in verse 2. I saw another angel, a fifth angel, a different angel. Uh, there are three notable phrases about this specific angel. First of all, it says that this angel ascends from the east, not descends, but ascends from the east. It also said that this angel has this seal of God, and they use the phrase, uh, till we have sealed the servants. So it's an interesting phrase there. There's going to be a sealing of the servants and it says, till we have sealed. So all of these phrases tell us that this is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ himself as he is, the only one who could have the seal and do the sealing. How, how could he have this seal if he didn't uh, have the authority to break the other seven seals in that book? That he just had, right? All right, so um, the next phrase, sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, what does this seal represent? And, and it's, it's kind of like a regular seal, but like what do we use seals for? Now, there are three purposes for a seal, and of course, three is the number of the Trinity, uh, three main purposes. Now, uh, the first is it protects from tampering. Matthew 27, 66 says, So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now this seal, seal protected Jesus' body in the grave from tampering or stealing. That's why they do it. It also marks ownership. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Uh, let me as a seal, no, set, yeah, there we go. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. Uh, the third thing it does, uh, it certifies that an item is of genuine 
character. Uh, Esther chapter 3 and verse 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. In the name of the king Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Okay, so that's three purposes of a seal. Uh, the three, uh, the Christians' three-fold seal. First of all, uh, we enjoy the Father's protection throughout life. Ephesians 4.30 And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Despite how we treat God, we cannot, I repeat that phrase, we cannot lose our salvation and the devil cannot harm us without God allowing it first, as in the uh, case of Job. God allowed that to happen. Otherwise, Satan would not have had access to Job. But the key to that verse, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you have it, you've got it. Number two, uh, the Christian's threefold seal. Second, uh, uh, Jesus has bought us with his blood. First Chronicle or Chronicles, First Corinthians one twenty-two, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now the Holy Spirit certifies that we are the sons of God, in Ephesians one thirteen fourteen, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Also, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. All right. In like manner, these tribulation witnesses will be sealed or protected by God as part of the same remnant. These are genuine descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what does it mean? Uh, or why, let me rephrase that. Why does it mention the forehead specifically? Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Sorry about that. I'm making notes, changing, uh, fluid motion, right? So, uh, the question is, uh, 47, here we go. Got my pages back. Why does it mention the forehead specifically? Uh, number one, it is the most noticeable part of man. When you look in the, at a man approaching, you look him in the face. And the first part of the face you would obviously recognize would be the forehead. <clears throat> Second, it could be a reference to Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Now, this is a strange passage here. I, m- I remember when we went through this. Now, Ezekiel 9, verses 4 through 6, it says, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set 
a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said, In mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eye spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So here in Ezekiel, uh, obviously there's some, something wrong going on as far as sin. And there are some who are standing out against it. And God tells him, he said, you go out and set a mark in these men, in their foreheads, to mark them. And then it said after that, and to the others, he said, uh, go out into the city, don't spare anyone, uh, any, anyone that doesn't have that mark, you kill them. And start at my house. And begin at my sanctuary. Start in God's house. So that right there is a warning to tell you that not everybody in God's house is God's children. Yeah. Why would he tell them to start there? All right. What is written on their foreheads? Now, Revelation 14, 1 says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, when man tries to put his spin on the things of God, as in the work in Ezekiel rendered Mark, is the name of the Hebrew letter Tau, T-A-U, of which the ancient form was a cross. Now, the early Christians adopted this sign as the symbol of their faith. And that's a reference to Ezekiel 20 and verse 4, thou shalt not, or, or actually God talks about that uh, in 20 verse 4. I was thinking it was going somewhere else to that, but uh, he says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, the heaven here refers to all of them. And when it says, Thou shalt not make unto me... And now, get this. I want you to draw your attention to this. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness that means pictures of Jesus. That means pictures of angels. That means little symbols of crosses. Uh, all these little fish symbols, which we'll get into that in a couple of chapters later and show you just what that really represents. It has nothing to do with Christianity, I promise you that. But Catholics use this cross mark in their infant baptisms as well as crossing themselves when they pray. Now here the emphasis on the cross and not on Christ as being the source of salvation. And that's why they do that. The emphasis is on the cross and not the Christ on the cross. So, take heed and take warning that when you brandish all these symbols of crosses and pictures of Jesus in your house and things like that, God said we're not supposed to do that. Okay? Just so you know. All right. That uh, talks about the first part. I'm trying to pull it up here. That covers uh, God's providential care for his own, verses 1 through 3. Okay, this next one is a big one. 
Big chapter, uh, section, rather. Uh, God's personal claim for His own, verses 4 through 12. God's personal claim. And, and I think the reason that I spent so much time in this, uh, this is uh, an area of a lot of confusion for a lot of people when we talk about these 144,000 uh, that are sealed. Um, I may not be able to read the whole thing, but uh, well, we'll try it. We'll see. Verse 4. Revelation chapter 7, verse 4. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, first thing to note right there, it's talking about Jews. Nowhere on there does it say anything about Gentiles. This is strictly referencing Jews and a specific number. Verse 5. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephthalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nassau were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations. Now we've gone from talking about the Jews to a select group of Gentiles, a great multitude of Gentiles here. And it said, Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Alright, so here is talking about God's personal claim. And again, I made mention of it that there are two distinct and separate groups of people spoken of here. <clears throat> the first group are those sealed to defy the totality of Satan's spiritual dominion. That's the Jew, verses 4 through Eight, and then there are those who those saved to deny the totality of Satan's spiritual dominion, verses nine through twelve. So there's those sealed to defy and those sealed to deny. So let's look at those to defy. These are Jews only. I mean, look, let's just get it out of the way. They are Jews, and they are Jews only. They are Jewish, as specifically named as. Uh, children of Israel. They are not the church, as that body has never been identified with the name Israel. Israel and the church are two different things. And they are not the nation of Israel in general, as God would not seal unbelievers for His service. It just doesn't make sense. So why is this group Jewish only? Because it fulfills the promise in Daniel's prophecy of the 70th week. And that's Daniel chapter 9, 
and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. All right, the next question we ask is who are the 144,000? Now, easily uh, translated or mentioned here is the 144,000 represents a breakdown of 12,000 individuals from each of the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes are mentioned here. But there's a difference in the 12 tribes named um, as in the Old Testament 12 tribes. Now, uh, all of them are pretty much the same, but I'm going to give you the ones that are different. In, in the Old Testament 12 tribes, uh, Ephraim is mentioned and Dan is mentioned. Joseph is not mentioned. Levi is not mentioned. In Revelation, Levi is mentioned and Joseph is mentioned, but Ephraim is not mentioned and Dan is not mentioned. So there's a difference in the list of 12. Basically looking at it this way, between the Old Testament and the Revelation uh, 12 tribes, Dan and Ephraim are missing while Levi and Joseph have been added. Now, many speculate the two tribes missing are being punished for idolatry. While it can certainly be proven that all 12 tribes were guilty of idolatry, there must be some prominence in the sin of idolatry of these two nations for that to work. Um, so let's look at it. Uh, first one, the nation of uh, the tribe of Dan. They were the first national tribe to fall into idolatry. They were the very first one. Judges 18, 30-31. And the children of Dan set up the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set them up Micah's graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Uh, second, Dan later became the headquarters for calf worship. 1 Kings 12, 28-30. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. Um, thirdly, some suggest that the prominence of their idolatry is the reason. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, verses 16 through 17. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. Some believe this foretells the Antichrist comes from this tribe. I don't know. 
Mm. Could be. But anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, fourth thing. In the Millennial Kingdom, Dan receives a portion of land as indicated by Ezekiel 48.1 and is even mentioned first. So this is a reason for them not basically being because of idolatry. Ezekiel 48.1. Now these are the names of the tribes. From the north end of the coast of the way of Hethlon, as one goeth to Hamath, Hazarenan, the border of Damascus northward to the coast of Hamath. For these are his sides east and west, a portion for Dan. So that's kind of an argument against the, uh, Dan being because of those, you know, the first national tribe or the headquarters or the prominence of idolatry. Yeah, they're still mentioned in the millennial kingdom there in Ezekiel 48. So there's that. Um, now, as far as Ephraim goes, <clears throat> um, first reason that some believe it is possible is that they were the foremost northern tribe to fall into idolatry. Seems kind of like a weak reason to me, but uh, Hosea 4, 17, 19. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Ephraim was the leader of the northern kingdom. Um, second, they were led in the division of the kingdom. They led in the division of the kingdom. Oh, yeah, they caused the division. Okay, okay. I'm trying to read that. Uh, I'm not going to read all this, but it's 1 Kings 11, verses 26 through 33. 1 Kings 11, 26 through 30. It gives the story there about how, the, how it was broken up. But yet still, too, God does not cast Ephraim away. In Hosea 11, 8, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Basically, God is saying, I can't give up on you. <laughs> That's what he's telling them. I just can't give up on you. Now, the order and inclusion of the names listed could be something. That could give us a little hint as to what's going on. Uh, so let's go down through that. Judah. Name means confession or praise of God, uh, which shall at last be rendered by the nation. Uh, Reuben's name means reviewing the son. So when they finally behold Jesus as the Messiah. Gad means a company. Uh, this is going forth to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Asher, whose name means blessed by God's grace, uh, is due despite all past Failure, they're still going to be blessed. Uh, Nephilim is a wrestler or striving with. And this would be referencing the forces of the beast. They've been wrestling striving with them. Manasseh is forgetfulness. As the Lord puts away their former iniquities and causes them to put the agonies of the dispersion behind them. Uh, Simeon's name means uh, hearing and obeying. Uh, which tells us at last the nation shall honor the words of their God. Levi means joining or cleaving to. What was never accomplished under the law will be realized in the coming kingdom. Issachar means reward or what is given by way of reward. Now here the land, God's covenant with Abraham, is in view. Zebulon's name means a home or dwelling place, likewise of the land grant. Joseph means added or an addition. 
the enlargement of the promise with the Davidic covenant and throne of Jerusalem. Benjamin's name means son of the right hand or son of old age. Over all shall reign the only begotten son of the ancient of days. All right, so there may be a link there uh, in the what the names mean. So I don't know. Not sure why some are excluded and others are not, but <clears throat> God has his reasons. It just didn't tell us about it that way. All right, so 144,000. You think, uh, why such a small number? Why such a small number? And I basically tried to give our Sunday school class an idea uh, close to what a group of 144,000 would look like. Um, you may know some of these places or you can picture it in your mind. Uh, we, I, I mentioned, first of all, the Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, will hold 167,000. So that's about 27,000 more. That's, that's a little bit excessive. That, that's Charlotte Motor Speedway. Um, in 2016, there was a game at Bristol Motor Speedway called the Battle at Bristol between Virginia Tech and Tennessee. Uh, there were 156,900 in attendance at that game, so that's close. Now, Michigan Stadium holds 115,109 people. So if you know anything about those, and again, like I just use references of some things that some of our people may know, but it represents the fact that God always uh, in some way has a small remnant somewhere. When he's passing judgment uh, and wiping everything out, even in the days of, remember the days of Noah, God was going to destroy the entire world, but it said, but Noah found favor with God. Noah was a righteous man. He was the only one right in the entire world. Think about that. The only one. And all these people think, you know, well, it's about public opinion. It's about the majority. It has have not one thing to do with majority. It doesn't matter what you think. It don't matter what I think. What matters is four words. Listen to me. Thus says the Lord. That's all that matters. I mean, he's in control of this whole thing anyhow. Why would you go against that? You're going to lose. Why waste your time going against it? <clears throat> so, uh, this small remnant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. It says, uh, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, or Elijah, how he maketh the intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, pulled down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself... 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Remember that 12 apostles along with godly people in the New Testament churches turned the entire world upside down in the first century. Acts 17, 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, 
These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. <clears throat> you know the phrase strength in numbers? Well, God always uses a small number, so man cannot take credit for such a miraculous work. It will be obvious that only God could do this. So again, why such a specific number, 144,000? This signifies perfection and completeness. 12 is the number for governmental perfection. 12 times 12 equals 144. All right, so next question. Why such a sealed number? The Lord sealed this number for a specific purpose. Sealed for what? Matthew 24, 14 tells us. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. They are to witness on behalf of God in the tribulation period. These 144,000 will accomplish much more than Christian missionaries have in about 2,000 years. J. Vernon McGee says that. <laughs> Excuse me, I think I'm getting a hiccups. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we see they're sealed for what? Now sealed from what? Uh, persecution from Satan. Uh, to witness during this time is going to cost them a great deal. Without the seal, they certainly would not make it through. God never leaves himself without a witness upon this earth. And if there's the presence of a witness, there is the presence of an opportunity, which means there is the presence for mercy. If there was strictly judgment, why would there need to be a witness? There will be some saved during the tribulation period. But I urge you to remember or to recall, don't get confused in the fact of these people that say, well, I'm just going to wait till the tribulation period gets here and then I'm going to um, repent and get saved. That's not going to happen. If you're here now, and you are old enough at what we call the age of accountability. You know you need Christ at a certain age. God puts that desire within you and opens your eyes and shows you if you do not accept him, if you reject him, then when the rapture takes place, your chance is done. These, I believe, are all going to be young people that are coming of age within the seven years that this is going to affect. I really honestly think that's how else could you explain it? It can't be adults that have reached the age of maturity before the rapture. So there you go. Uh, next question. Why such a secluded number? Why such a secluded number? Uh, Revelation 14, 3 through 4. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now notice, first of all, they're singing. They sang a new song which no one else could learn, as it were means in that manner. They have their own song. We have our songs, Amazing Grace and Redeemed, and nobody else can sing them songs. These 144,000 are going to have a unique song uh, 
all on their own. And it goes much further than that. Think about this. They're separating. And, uh, this will drive the women's rights movement absolutely crazy, but th this is God. This is not us making this decision. This is God. Think about this. Uh, they're separating. It says, not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And then it goes on down in verse uh, 4 where it says, they were redeemed from among men. Now this phrase about defiled with women is not condemning marriage at all. It simply states that these specific people are not defiled. Now God's position on marriage is uh, talked about in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now that is a loaded, packed portion of scripture. First of all, it's obvious. It's a man and a woman. Marriage is a man and a woman. Marriage is a man and a woman only. <clears throat> But Paul tells them here that it's better if a man doesn't touch a woman at all. But, verse 2, to avoid fornication. If a man doesn't touch a woman, fornication, it almost seems like this scripture is saying fornication is too heavy of a burden to avoid. And you say, well, the Catholics have done it. Oh, really? We'll get into that. Uh, there might be one or two or a few, but, uh, well, again, we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, but it says, let every man have his own wife and let everyone have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That means don't deny them sex. If the husband wants sex, the wife should never say no. If the wife wants sex, the husband should never say no. Unless, again, look at verse 5. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. Unless you both agree, hey, we've got something to really pray strong about, and we need to focus on that, so let's avoid sexual contact, to, to, you know, distract us or anything like that. Let's focus on this, fast for this, uh, for four days. And both agree upon it. That defraud ye not in verse 5 means to deprive, to keep back by a lie. And we all know what lie prevents sex from happening, right? I have a headache. <laughs> that's one that's always talked about a lot. Well, I did this in Sunday school too. And I might as well include it in here. There has been a, it has been, sorry, it has been sexually, I can't even get my words right. It has been scientifically proven that sex is better than medicine for a headache. Sexual activity releases endorphins, which is the body's natural painkillers. And I have the article here. Uh, it was printed in 
December 3rd, 2016. The title is Why Sex is a Better Headache Cure Rather Than Painkillers. And it was posted on the Telegraph website. Uh, it's an article by a man named Andrew Huff, H-O-U-G-H. Uh, and he actually uh, posted this article on the 4th of March in 2013. And this is what it says. Why sex is better headache cure rather than painkillers. A team of neurologists found that sexual activity can lead to partial or complete relief of head pain in some migraines. The study from the University of Munster, Germany, suggests that instead of using a sore head as an excuse to refuse sex, making love can be more effective than taking painkillers. Their research, reported in Cephalalgia, the Journal of the International Headache Society, found that more than half of migraine sufferers who had sex during an episode experienced improvement in symptoms. One in five patients left without any pain at all, while others, in particular male sufferers, even used sexual activity as a therapeutic tool, they added. They suggested that sex triggers the release of endorphins, the body's natural painkillers, through the central nervous system, which can in turn reduce or even eliminate a headache. The majority of patients with migraine or cluster headache do not have sexual activity during headache attacks, the study concluded. Our data suggests, however, that sexual activity can lead to partial or complete relief of headache in some migraine and a few cluster headache patients. Our results show that sexual activity during a migraine attack might relieve or even stop an attack in some cases, and that sexual activity in the presence of headache is not an unusual behavior. They added sex can abort migraine and cluster headache attacks, and sexual activity is used by some patients as acute headache treatment. So I tell you again that excuse of having a headache uh, should not work anymore un unless you just don't tell the other your spouse about this article <laughs> all right so uh hopefully that made you laugh a little bit <clears throat> uh now going back to our passage here first corinthians 7 1 through 5 where he says defraud you not one the other except it be with content consent for a time now verse 5 is critical in paul's point here that it is better for us all to only have one focus, and that being God alone. But in marriage, we have a dual focus, God and our marriage. God and our marriage. Um, now he goes on, verses 32 through 34, in that same chapter, he says, But I would have you without carefulness, he that is unmarried, careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world. Yeah, how he may please his wife. Sorry, I'm about to lose my place. Uh, there is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may, may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
So, um, trying to make notes on this portion, excuse me. <clears throat> now, some believe this means following the idolatry of the false religion uh, of this time. Now, if so, the phrasing would be defiled of women instead of defiled with women. Of is the word it means proceeding from, as the cause or the source or the means, author or agent bestowing, as in Romans 8.10, and if Christ be in you, the body of the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Then the word with means to meet or unite in connection, partnership, on the side of, an intercourse, like as in Genesis chapter 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So defiled of women would suggest that they had been manipulated by the false religion of that day. But the, but the phrase defiled with women says they had not had intercourse as specifically noted by the next phrase in the passage as to clarify things for they are virgins. <clears throat> okay. So <clears throat> in getting through all that, we've seen their singing, we've seen their separating, and now we see their selecting. They're selecting. God is dealing with the nation of Israel. In Old Testament days, God would usually use a male figure to represent himself. In rare cases, he did use females, and I would say that he used females because the males weren't strong enough figures to do what he needed to do. But some of the females that he uh, used in those times were Deborah, Ruth, or Esther. They were strong uh, women that were able to do what he needed to have done. <clears throat> and so... Um, while the Bible doesn't say it, although there is this hint, uh, I'll lay it out there that I personally believe these 144,000 Jews that are going to be sealed are specifically and actually going to be young men. They're going to be young men who've never been married, never been with a woman, and are going to be completely focused on the things of God. Okay. <clears throat> that... Uh, is going to have to be a good stopping point. Uh, we're about halfway through this second uh, thing in chapter 7, I guess you'd say, the, the God's personal claim for his own. Uh, we talked about those sealed to de defy the totality of Satan's spiritual dominion, which talks about these Jews. Now, the next one we'll talk about are those saved to deny the totality of Satan's spiritual dominion. Okay, so we'll pick that up and talk about that a little bit. Okay? All right, once again, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you uh, or have you join us on the next podcast. God bless you, and have a great day.